Boarding that Greyhound bus to travel through the heart of the Deep South, I felt good. I felt happy. I felt liberated. I was like a soldier in a nonviolent army. I was ready. I'm on my way. The Freedom Rides of 1961 were a simple but daring plan to put blacks and whites on commercial buses. They would deliberately violate the segregation laws. These people are going from town to town and getting off the bus, Negro men and white women, to provoke acts of violence. The idea of going into Mississippi and going into Alabama and challenging segregation so frontally is something that alarmed not only those who oppose civil rights, but those within the civil rights community. I don't question their legal right to travel, but I question their wisdom. Some people can get hurt. How was that feeling? I'd just like to punch some of the, 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 them damn agitators right in the face. There was a mob, looked like a thousand people. They had these iron pipes. I asked God to be with me, to give me the strength I would need to remain nonviolent and to forgive them. Buses are a coming, oh yes. Buses are a coming, oh yes. It was America. It was interracial. It was interregional. It was secular and religious. It was a shining moment. Your parents tell you, don't start something that you can't finish. Finish it. Those were excerpts from the award-winning film, Freedom Riders, which was directed by Stanley Nelson. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Stanley Nelson was one of 10 directors participating in the inaugural year of Film Forward, an initiative of the Sundance Institute and the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, in partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The project presented five American and five foreign films, both narrative and documentary, to audiences in the United States and abroad. Moviegoers were given the opportunity to connect with the filmmakers themselves through post-film talkbacks, roundtables, and workshops in places ranging from China to the ghetto film school in the Bronx. Stanley Nelson's film, Freedom Riders, was an inspired choice for the program. It's a documentary about the extraordinarily brave men and women, black and white, who risked their lives by riding on interstate buses together in 1961. From May through November, in a journey that began in Washington, D.C. and ended in New Orleans, over 400 black and white Americans tested the law of the land and defied entrenched Jim Crow segregation. As they made their journey, their bus was burned. They were set upon by out-of-control gangs. They were beaten, jailed. Yet the trip continued as more and more people came forward to take their place. Stanley Nelson based his documentary on Raymond Arzenault's book, Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Nelson himself is an award-winning filmmaker and recipient of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. 
In Freedom Riders, he wove together archival news footage with testimony from the riders themselves, state and federal government officials, and journalists who covered the journey over those long months. The film, which was part of the acclaimed PBS series, The American Experience, was completed in 2010, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides in 2011. It went on to win acclaim at many film festivals, including Sundance, where it was chosen for Film Forward. I caught up with Stanley Nelson in Washington, D.C., after a screening of Freedom Riders, followed by a discussion, organized by Film Forward. Here's our conversation. Stanley Nelson, when did you first know that you wanted to make a film about the Freedom Riders? Um, I was actually approached by American Experience. They had purchased uh, Ray Arsenal's book, and they said um, that they wanted to send it to me and, and take a look at it, and they were thinking about making a film. Uh, when I read the book and see what I thought, I said, uh, yeah, send the book, but you know, I can tell you right now, I think it's a good idea. Um, and I'd like to do it. And that was because I, I knew a little bit about the story, but not nearly as much as I thought I knew, but that um, I really had wanted, always had wanted to do a film um, that took a look at um, a single piece of the civil rights movement and really was able to dissect one piece of the civil rights movement. So I kind of jumped at the chance to make the film. Just give us a, a very brief thumbnail sketch about what that piece is. There might be listeners who are uncertain who the Freedom Riders are. In 1961, uh, 13 people, um, seven whites and six blacks, decided that they would test the uh, segregation laws on buses and in bus stations in the Deep South by uh, getting on Greyhound and Trailways buses and uh, going down from uh, Washington, D.C. to New Orleans in the they would sit together on the buses, the white and black people would sit together on the buses. The whites would use the colored-only restrooms. The African-Americans would use the uh, white-only restrooms, and they'd eat together in the restaurants and the bus stations, and they'd see what happened. So the film uh, Freedom Riders is the story of what ensues uh, over the next uh, couple of months um, as the first 13 people get beaten so badly they can't continue. Uh, another group of students uh, decide they'll take up the Freedom Rides. It finally uh, includes over 400 people, and the signs in the bus stations are taken down as a result of the Freedom Rides. I think it's pretty fair to say that what happened with those rides really shocked at least a good part of the nation. Mm -hmm. And the media played a very important role in getting those images out to the American public at large. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that, that part of the story is that these images of a burning bus, because the bus was firebombed, of people taking savage beatings, were shocking. You know, and they were shocking not only to people in the North, but they were also shocking to people in the South, you know. I mean, it was generally thought that, you know, the mobs that, that attacked the Freedom Riders had gone way too far even in the South. But, you know, you have to understand that back in 1961, we basically had two countries. You know, you had the North and the South, and, and the, the segregation system in the South and the violence that existed against African Americans in the South was not talked about in the North and, and, and generally not covered or not covered very well by the Northern press. Do you remember those images when you were a kid? 
you know, kind of. I mean, it's all kind of mixed up in my head. I was 10 years old when the Freedom Rides took place. So probably I didn't, I don't remember when it happened. But I, I did, you know, I had seen this kind of iconic pictures of the bus that was set on fire and some of the other pictures. I, I do remember some of the later events in the Civil Rights Movement, you know, the dogs being set on people, the fire hoses. Those things I do remember uh, watching on TV on the nightly news. The Freedom Riders themselves were people who were deeply committed to nonviolence and committed to the idea of the beloved community, which is a concept that came out of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they really stuck to those guns in the face of horrific violence. Well, I mean, it was really important. That was part of the, of the whole idea of the Freedom Riders, that it was nonviolent, no matter what. So the first group of Freedom Riders had took training where they were kind of set upon by each other and, and you know, called names and to kind of get them not to be not to react, not to be violent, no matter what happened. And one of the fantastic things for us in the film is that was recorded. They filmed, they actually filmed the, the training session, so we were able to use that in the film. Do you think that they expected the extent of the violence? Uh, as Julian Bond says in the film, you know, they probably expected some kind of incidents to happen, but you know, nowhere near the violence that, that they received. I, I think that it was impossible for anyone to predict the level of violence that, that they would meet. You know, part, part of what we try to uh, state over and over again in, in the film is that you know, these people were just sitting together on the front of the bus. I mean, that's all they were doing. And for doing that, the bus was, a firebomb was thrown in the bus, and then the mob held the bus doors closed so that nobody could escape, attempting and hoping that, that the Freedom Riders would burn alive in, in the buses. But the Freedom Riders also had in their mind the idea of beginning a mass movement based on nonviolent direct action. That's fair. Right. I, I think that, that what the Freedom Riders felt also was that that, that you have to take uh, the movement into the Deep South. And that was one of the, the big uh, pieces and revelations of, of the Freedom Rides is that it was generally thought by people in, in the movement, by most of the organizations and by the individual leaders, that, that you couldn't go to Mississippi, you couldn't go to Alabama, that those places weren't ready. You know, that, that first let's, let's get a movement going in, in, in what's called the Upper South, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, those places, and let's go there. But the Freedom Riders said, no, you know, you know, we, where you see wrong, you have to confront it and you have to confront it directly. And if you confront it directly with nonviolence, it will work. It will work. It will work. Freedom Riders were arrested in Mississippi and sent to Parchment Prison, which is, it was probably one of the worst prisons in the United States at the time. And... CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, they had a bedrock belief of no bail. But that was pretty controversial at the time, wasn't it? Well, I think it was controversial, but I think at that point, people were, were kind of willing to follow the Freedom Rides. At this point, you know, this was after massive violence in, in Birmingham, Anniston, Montgomery. Um, so people, I think, were willing to join in and listen. Um, the idea of, you know, if they're going to arrest us, 
what we're going to do is we're not going to take bail. We're going to stay in jail, and we're not only going to stay in jail, but we're going to call for more Freedom Riders to come down here, and we'll, we'll fill up the jails, and, and we'll put the burden onto Mississippi. You know, we'll take the burden off us. We'll put the burden on Mississippi. Mississippi now has to house us, has to feed us, has to find a place for us to stay. You know, and, and we'll just keep coming and coming, and you can keep arresting us, but we will keep coming, and we'll fill up your jails, and then what are you going to do? Well, what did the Kennedy administration do? Well, the Kennedys really were interested in foreign policy. That's, you know, JFK was president and his brother, Bobby Kennedy, was attorney general. They were really interested in foreign policy. This was in the middle of the Cold War. Kennedys had kind of come in into office based on their Cold War stance. This was the very beginning of the civil rights movement, and they wanted it to go away. You know, that's what they wanted. They just wanted this thing to disappear. Um, they also were elected partially because of Southern Democrats. The, at this point, the South was very heavily Democratic. The, the Southern politicians had an inordinate amount of power in the Senate and Congress because they were elected over and over again because the South always voted Democratic. So once you got in, the chance of you getting reelected were, you know, very, very, very high. So they had all, all the Southern politicians had been in office for a long time. They had this huge amount of power. And the Kennedys um, didn't want to go against them. The last thing the Kennedys wanted to do was to bring in federal troops. And to the South, that looked like, you know, here we go, this is the same as in Reconstruction once again. And that was, you know, a terrible no-no. So the Kennedys were, were trying everything they possibly could do to not be involved or seem that they weren't involved and to not bring in federal troops, which finally they needed to do, of course. Okay, Stanley, you have, I would imagine, an enormous amount of archival footage to choose from to tell this story. And at the same time, you also had interviews of some of the people who were involved in it and are still alive, as well as historians who would comment on it. How did you get your arms around this? Well, I think that for us in making the film, the biggest decision was, was when I made the decision that we we're going to make the film without narration. And so that means that, that there's an extra burden on the archival material, the footage, the stills, the music, the radio pieces that we use. Uh, and so we knew that we had to have great, great, great archival. We'd already won uh, awards for archival research in uh, Jonestown and in Wounded Knee, uh, two films that we did in the last few years. And so, you know, we, we had a track record, kind of knew how to find archival, and, and but really went all out in this process to find great archival footage and, and stills. Um, and kind of the way we do that is, is the, the first day that we meet in the production team, we make a list, we start making a list of, of archival footage, pictures, music, whatever that we're looking for. And, and we keep expanding that list, but we start looking from the very first day of production. And we literally um, continue to look until the last day of production. So it's not an afterthought, you know, the archival material for me and for us is, is part of the story. It, it, it is part of the storytelling, um, so it's very important. And the music, of course, is extraordinary from that period as well that you drew from. Yeah, we were able to, to get great, great music. Um, what we did was there, there's a number of, of records, um, music of the civil rights movement kind of thing. And so we took all of those and put them on the, the iPad and the computer and made a playlist. And just I would just listen to music of that period, you know, over and over again all the time. It was on my phone. You know, I'd listen to it on my phone. I'd listen to it at home. I'd listen to it at the office and just listen to it. And then I would kind of call down the music that I thought, you know, okay, so maybe we could use this, maybe we could use that. Anything that I thought might be good, then we put on a another 
we call, I called it hit list of, of the civil rights movement. And then, and then we st I started listening to that more and more. And from that, we started making the, uh, the music that actually is in the film. Singing was a way of releasing tension. So we did a lot of singing. A lot of the songs came from old spirituals. They just changed the words to fit whatever was going on at that time. As we got on the bus, I had an idea for a new stanza, Pride Enterprise. Riding on this big greyhound, carrying love from town to town. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. And everybody started singing along with me, and that's what we sang as we got on the bus. There were different songs that we were singing to fit the occasion. Uh, for example, one of the songs we would sing would go like, uh, Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on a-walking, keep on a-talking, walking up the King's Highway. Ain't gonna let nobody do it. Turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody do You get to the prison, oh God, get out with this rifle drawn. And he says something like, sing your goddamn freedom songs now. Sing your goddamn freedom songs now. I'm taking the Greyhound bus to Jackson this time. I'm right in the front seat and I'll do it every time. Hallelujah, I'm a traveling. Hallelujah, ain't it fine? Hallelujah, I'm a traveling down freedom's main line. Because I wouldn't stop singing, I got put in solitary confinement three different times. We had a small group in our jail cell, and we had a quartet, and I was part of the quartet, and we would sing to the ladies late at night when things were quiet. I know, I know we'll meet again, I know, I know we'll meet again, I know. I know we'll meet again someday. Ooh. The reason for that singing was to let them know that we were okay. And then they would sing back to us and they would let us know that they were okay. put us in harmony with each other, gave us support for each other, and we relish the opportunity. Even if you didn't have a great voice, it doesn't matter, you could hum, and so everybody could sing. 
I, I think one of the great stories of the music that we used is there's a song called Hallelujah, I'm Traveling, which was actually written by Bayard Rustin, a great civil rights leader. And the only version, and this was actually written for the Freedom Rides, but the only version that we could find was him singing it. And he sings in this kind of really uh, operatic voice. So it's like, Hallelujah, I'm traveling, Hallelujah. And it just didn't work for anything in the film. And, and so we asked the, com the guy who was composing the original music for the film, and he said, I have a singer who, uh, who I can ask to do it. And he had her recording, he sent us the recording, and she sounded like Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey or something. It was just like, you know, too much vocalization. And, um, you know, I told him, well, have her do it again and have her do, have her do it like she's riding on a bus in the middle of the night on the Freedom Ride. She's going through Alabama. It's three in the morning. She, everybody else is asleep. And she's sitting there with her head up against the window kind of singing to herself. She's just singing the song to herself. Have her do it like that. He sent it back to us and everybody was just bowled over and it, it becomes a central point in the film. That one song is something we go back to over and over again in the film. Singing, the music became a powerful, nonviolent instrument. And I often said without music, without the singing, we would have lost a sense of solidarity. It gave us hope in a time of hopelessness. I'm a traveling. Hallelujah, ain't it fine? Hallelujah, I'm a traveling down freedom's main line. She actually ends the film singing that song, and it's just, it's really, it's that kind of thing where it's just magic. You know, it didn't have to happen, didn't have to work, but it did. Hallelujah, ain't it fine? Hallelujah, I'm a traveling down freedom's main line. What about the people you spoke to who were involved in the Freedom Rides? Both the riders, but also, I have to tell you, the person who intrigued me was Governor Patterson. Do tell us about him. Uh, well, Governor Patterson's a, a fascinating character. He was governor in Alabama in 1961. He was the youngest governor ever elected. He was 32 when he was elected. So when we interviewed him, he was about 80. He was still very vibrant, still had a great, great memory, and, and really wanted to talk about it and talk about it honestly. Also, I should say that, you know, back then we have a number of, of film clips of him back then, and he's just an out-and-out -out racist and just a horrible guy. You know, he says, uh, one of his great, great quotes is, you know, you can't, protect the safety of a fool, and that's what these freedom riders are, just fools, and I can't protect them. Just a real character back then. But I think, you know, now he's had a lot of chance to reflect on it, and I f feel that he just wanted to confess. You know, he wanted to confess his sins. You know, he wanted to get those sins off his chest and have a chance to really just talk about it and be honest. You know, not so much for forgiveness, but just as an act of confession. And he's, he's incredibly honest. There's this great scene where he talks about how he gets a call from, from JFK, who's the, the president of the United States, and he tells his secretary to, to tell J, JFK, the president of the United States, that he's not there. And then uh, Kennedy's person uh, persists and says, well, where is he? And Patterson says, uh, tell him that I'm in the Gulf fishing and I can't be reached. And he says, I lied. I simply lied. It's just a great moment in the film, a great moment of honesty, a great moment of candor. And, you know, I, as a filmmaker, you know, I thank him so much because it means so much to the film to hear this guy, um, one, you know, um, back there in 1961, but then also today talking about it so honestly and openly. And what about the Freedom Riders and what they remember? 
Well, the Freedom Riders are getting up there, but but you know, a lot of them were were college students. So many of them were twenty, and that was fifty years ago. So they're seventy. They still have great memories. I mean, you know, I, I I've done films where I interviewed everybody who was ninety and ninety five years old. So so these are youngins to me. They're great. I mean, I I think that they were great. I think that one of the most marvelous things about the Freedom Riders. And the story is that these were common, normal, everyday people, a lot of them, who did this very amazing, courageous thing. And so many of them went back to their normal lives. And many of them you know, are not asked on a daily, monthly, or weekly, or yearly basis about the Freedom Rides. So you know, I asked them, and it, and it opened up a floodgate. Part of my job as the director was to shut them up, you know, because they, they just wanted to talk so much about it. And they actually, a lot of them really hated me, you know, uh, and they thought I was nuts until they saw the film because to them I just kept interrupting them and I kept saying no I don't need that and I wouldn't let them talk about certain things and make them talk about other things and a couple of them have told me we thought you were like insane <laughs> because you only wanted to talk about what you wanted to talk about but now now they all say now we see where you were headed so it's great. What surprised you as you were doing the research? Um, I think for me, the whole film, the whole story surprised me. It, it's such a multi-level story. It's such a kind of a roller coaster adventure ride. But I, I think one of the things that, that really surprised me was the fact that, that, that the story works on so many different kind of uh, political levels. So on one level, it, it's just these people riding a bus through the South. On another, it's, it's the state government with Governor Patterson weighing in. It's the national government with the Kennedys. And then there's this whole other arena that it works in, which is the cold. War. So you have Russia uh, weighing in with the headlines about the Freedom Riders in Cuba. There's a, a radio piece that we use from, from Radio Havana talking about how, you know, Kennedy needs to mind his own business and stay out of Cuba when he can't manage his own business at home. We have a great film clip from Czechoslovakia talking about how, you know, um, black people in the United States can't even ride from state to state. So how can the United States talk about freedom uh, if they can't even mind their own business? So I think that that really surprised me. I think for viewers, what might be surprising is the conflicts within the civil rights movement, because people tend to think of the civil rights movement as monolithic, as right. opposed to contain many voices. Right. I think that's a really interesting point about, about the, the, the story, uh, is that you know the, the first group of the freedom riders are from CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. And the other civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King, are telling them, don't go. You know, don't go down south. You know, um, the south isn't ready. You know, you guys aren't prepared. Um, you know, you're basically a northern group. You're not ready for the deep south. And then later on, uh, Martin Luther King is asked again to join the Freedom Rides, and he refuses. And there's a lot of animosity uh, towards Dr. King at that point. And, and again, the cr some cracks develop that then kind of play out as the civil rights movement plays out later on, especially between younger people and the more established uh, kind of Christian organizations uh, uh, that Martin Luther King, Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, and others uh, ran. And finally, Stanley, as this film is part of Film Forward, what kind of conversations have you been having as people around the world have been seeing the film. Right, well, I, I've gone to uh, China with Film Forward, which is just an incredible experience. You know, uh, on one level, you know, people ask the same questions. You know, they would ask about Governor Patterson, about about the Kennedys, ab about Martin Luther King. Um, but on the other hand, they would ask questions that were, that were strictly, you know, um, Chinese. One, one guy asked about, you know, this is, took place at the, about the same time as the Cultural Revolution. How can we here do a film on the Cultural Revolution? Is that 
possible? You know, how would we get started? Do you think we'd be censored? One of the greatest questions we got was was a young guy asked, um, so, uh, you know, why was there segregation in the United States? Which was such a beautiful question. It's so elemental and, it, you know, it's wonderful. It, it's a question that, that you know, we're, we're probably too jaded and too sophisticated to ask, but it's, it's a central question in, in the story of, of the Freedom Riders. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Stanley Nelson, the director of the award-winning film Freedom Riders, which was also a selection for the first year of Film Forward, an initiative of the Sundance Institute and the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. Film Forward is about to kick off its second year on February 26th in Tucson, Arizona. For more information, go to Sundance.org and click on Film Forward. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Freedom Riders, courtesy of Stanley Nelson and Firelight Media. Excerpt from Freedom, sung by Bayard Rustin, used courtesy of the Bayard Rustin Foundation. Excerpts from Calypso Freedom by Sweet Honey in the Rock from the CD, All for Freedom, used courtesy of Music for Little People. Special thanks to the folks at the Sundance Film Festival and at Firelight Media. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the former Poet Laureate, Rita Dove. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Well, you can hinder me here. You can hinder me there. But I go.